Amazing, let's do this. Okay, mm -hmm. so welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Alicia. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and women in general. And we are back for episode two. Yes, I'm super pumped. So on today's episode, we are going to be getting into the life and times of Elizabeth Blackwell, MD. And of course, to start, I want to ask you, Shar, what you okay. already know about Elizabeth Blackwell. Um, not, not a lot. I know that she was the first female physician to maybe get like a actual medical education, like in modern time sense, because there are obviously other I guess that's not obvious, but there were other female physicians throughout all of history. If we're going to go back to ancient history, like episode one. Yeah. For modern history, as much as I know, she's the first like official female physician. Good. Okay. You're very much on the right track. Okay. So <laughs> officially, Elizabeth Blackwell is known for being the first woman to graduate from medical school and to receive a medical degree in the United States. But of course, you accomplished much more than that. And that's what we're going to get into. But before we do that, I kind of wanted to take a second to explain why we chose this woman to be, you know, the center of our second episode. And of course, part of that answer is obvious. I mean, this podcast is about and made by women in medicine. And mm -hmm. so we felt like it would be ridiculous not to dive into her life, since we probably wouldn't be where we are today without her. But right. also, this is so random, but I kind of recall at one point in my life when I was in like high school, AP US history, I remember learning about Elizabeth Blackwell super, super briefly. Oh, really? And, what? Yeah, but I didn't learn anything about her besides the fact that she was the first female physician and that was that. And so oh. I was already curious about her. And of course, her story, I feel like her story is not always told in spaces that it deserves to be told in. Oh, like, for example, her story deserves to be in a high school textbook, I think, in my opinion, but it mm -hmm. isn't. And so that's just another example of how women are not allowed to be in the spotlight. I think that's kind of why I was really excited to take on this episode and take the lead on this because her story is definitely worth telling. And I'm really excited to tell it today. I'm very excited as well. <laughs> Um, and for the research that I did on her life, I literally read this woman's entire autobiography. Oh my it God. It is titled Pioneer Work in Opening the Medical Profession to Women. If anyone is interested in some light reading. Wow. Was it actually light though? <laughs> it was not light at all. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I'm going to get into that because she really gets into the details of her life. It's, oh, she's a thorough woman. Really, she's so thorough. But I, after reading this autobiography, I feel so close to this woman. Like we are on nickname basis, not even first name. Like me and Lizzie, we are super close. Wow. And I hope I don't offend anyone by calling her Lizzie throughout this episode because I definitely am going to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. But with that, um, I'm excited. So let's, let's get into it. Sounds good. So I wanted to start the history 
with a point of view into the 1820s. So let's start right. with a little, a little POV moment, okay? <laughs> Close your eyes and imagine this. Okay, my eyes are closed. It's Victorian England. The middle class is growing in size and wealth. Industrialization is on the rise and big bell-shaped poofy skirts with corsets are all the rage in women's fashion. Right, very uncomfortable. Okay. We are there. <laughs> I am there. But I will say none of this really matters for you because oh. you are a little girl growing up in Bristol, England. Okay. You, your parents, and your siblings live in the countryside, and you are the third oldest of nine children. Wow. Your household is super religious, but your parents are pretty progressive. You live the first decade of your life very carefree, very happy. And not knowing that you, a young Elizabeth Blackwell, would one day study medicine. Amazing. Okay, well, Elizabeth Blackwell was born February 3rd, 1821 in Bristol, England. And her parents were named Hannah Lane and Samuel Blackwell. And like I said before, Elizabeth was the third of nine children. Okay. So they lived really happily in Bristol until Elizabeth was about 11 years old. When a lot of political issues kind of arose in England, and also the first cholera epidemic broke out in England. Oh my God. I know. That's amazing. I know. <laughs> Not because <laughs> cholera is amazing, but because we love infectious disease. <laughs> infectious disease, people really underestimate how impactful it is. Like this cholera epidemic, who knows if her parents would have left. England if that epidemic hadn't broken out and so many things would have been right. different about history. Wow. I was wondering, I'm like, why is she born in England, but she graduated med school in the US? But you've answered know, my question. Yeah. So there was a cholera epidemic and political issues. And this led their father, Samuel, to move the family to the United States. But also, this is related but a little unrelated. I still thought it was interesting though. Okay. Samuel Blackwell. He was a big abolitionist, so he wanted to help abolish slavery, and this also partially motivated their decision to move the family to the U.S. Hmm. And this family was so anti-slavery, they gave up sugar because it was a slave product. Like, wow. talk about commitment to the cause. They sugar? gave up sugar. I, like, thrive on sugar. Like I know. <laughs> I know. I just thought that was interesting. So they moved to the United States. And they live in New Jersey and New York for some time. But in 1838, when Lizzie was 17, guess where they move? It's funny because this place might seem very random, but it's not random for us. Oh. It's not Michigan. I will oh, say I was like, oh my God, some weird Michigan city. No, I, I knew you were going to think it was Michigan. It's not Michigan, but it's close to Michigan. And it's oh, a state oh. that we we have talked about and we like know about what? what can you guess um is it like mystic falls virginia <laughs> no. <laughs> no it's so much closer it's so much, it's in the midwest oh no it's okay i'm, I'm not so gonna so make you guess anymore is it is it cleveland it's not cleveland but you're so close <laughs> oh no okay cleveland cincinnati yes amazing yes <laughs> they moved yeah. to cincinnati ohio from new york and unfortunately, within a few months, their dad dies of 
this thing called bilious fever. So I looked up what bilious fever is because infectious disease, like disease, interesting. Yeah. And basically it's this really high fever that is also accompanied with excessive bile or bilirubin in the blood. And for context, for people who don't know, bilirubin is a liver protein that's also yellow in color. And so when it gets in your blood, you appear yellow, which is what jaundice is. Oh, yeah. So bilious fever, basically you get jaundice, you have a very high fever and you can pass away. So their father passes away from bilious fever and that basically left the family very poor, like with no income. And so to make ends meet, Lizzie's family opens this little school in their house. It's like a boarding house. And she becomes a teacher along with her two older sisters to help their mom with finances and help to take care of her younger siblings. The school is thriving for a couple years, but then they close after a few years and Lizzie moves to Kentucky. And Mm -hmm. to be honest, like I'm reading through her autobiography and this part of her life wasn't super, super interesting. But in one of the letters that she wrote to her family about this time in her life, Mm -hmm. She gave an account of 19th century dating in the South. And even though this is not at all relevant to the big picture, I really wanted to read a snippet of this letter. Are you ready? I really want to hear it. Okay. (laughs) There is a spot called Lover's Grove, about three quarters of a mile from the town, a sweet place on the riverbank, encircled by trees with a hill behind. This used to be my Sunday afternoon stroll. But unfortunately, it is the favorite resort of the Bow and Bells of Henderson, who, during the summer, after afternoon church, regularly promenade in groups of four or five and meet accidentally on purpose. Here, they stroll about, recline on the grass, watch the steamboat, flirt a little, it being Sunday, and carve each other's names and sentimental verses on the unfortunate locust trees. Oh, God. I had many offers of an escort hither, and as many bow as I might desire. I went once or twice, but at last got dreadfully tired of it. So while my party was busily engaged round a tree, I started off on a brisk walk home, where, sometime after, the others arrived, in some consternation to know how or why I had so suddenly vanished. I laughed at them and their sentimental doings, and they have not invited me since. Oh, wow. That is a hard same for me. (laughs) You know, when you you go out with a group of people that you know, but you're not really super close with, Mm -hmm. and you're out with them, and then they start, like, flirting with each other or flirting with other people, and you're just like, uh... This is not my scene. So my you just vibe. Leave. Yeah. I know. You so you just leave and then later you're you're out, you're you're getting food, you're eating pizza house, and they all show up and they're like, Oh my god, where have you been? We've been looking for you. But you know they weren't looking for you. <laughs> That's what I imagine Elizabeth Blackwell was going through with all of these like people. That was Southern dating. That's amazing. The whole time you were reading that letter, I was just thinking of like in the fourth Harry Potter, when like everyone's asking each other to the Yule Ball, especially in the movies, like when I'm visualizing, is they're like walking around Hogwarts in the corridors and they're like 
standing there waiting for people to ask them to the dance. Yeah, it's literally what I was envisioning. Okay, so back to her actual life. Okay. So Lizzie moves back to Ohio and she's in her mid 20s about now, okay? And we finally get into her actually starting to consider medicine. Okay. Her interest came when her friend got sick. And before this friend passes away, she tells Lizzie that she would have preferred to have a woman physician because she thinks that her suffering would have been less if she had had one. And she tells Lizzie that she should pursue medicine. But there were some problems. Mm -hmm. And what do you think? What are some roadblocks in her way? I'm not going to go with the obvious one right away. I'm going to say. No, you can. It's okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I was just gonna, my other one is I was going to say money because med school is very expensive. But that she was a woman and like mm-hmm. women were not in the medical profession. And I don't even know if they were legally allowed in medical school. Yes. Good. So the obvious one is my first point. So <laughs> okay. obviously no woman had been admitted to medical school. Okay. The money also was a problem. So she had to basically figure out a way to save up money. Um, so she had the problem of actually being admitted. She had the money problem, but also she didn't have a good enough educational background or medical experience to be admitted to a good school, which I thought was interesting because to apply to medical school now, a big buzzword or something that people talk about a lot is like clinical experience um, because you need clinical to get into med school these days. And it wasn't at all different in the past. And something that was interesting too was that her favorite advisor, who was a family friend of hers, actually told her that there was no use in trying to apply to medical school. But if she were to try, her only chance of getting in would be to dress up as a man and be trained in Paris. And a couple other oh. doctors that she knew also suggested the same to her. Like Mulan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. However, instead of listening to them, she decided to go live with a doctor named Samuel Henry Dixon in Charleston, South Carolina to gain some medical experience. So living with him, she had access to a whole medical library. She was able to study Greek and Latin, and she basically shadowed him for two years, but she was living with him kind of as um, an au pair, like as a nanny. Mm -hmm. And so she was getting paid to do this. So she was also saving up money to go to medical school. Oh, wow. So Lizzie has all this medical experience now. She's been living with this doctor for two years, and still when she applies to medical school, She couldn't get into any of the established institutions, so she had to apply to a bunch of smaller schools, and she eventually got into one school called Geneva Medical College, which is in Geneva, New York, and that's kind of located in Western New York, Okay. and she was 26 at the time. So, Char, do you have any guesses about how she got in? Like, what was the admissions process like for her? Oh, God. Um, I'm going to guess she applied and she maybe took people's advice and dressed like a man and pretending to be a man, maybe. Okay. That's a good guess. That's a very solid guess, but this it's because this is so ridiculous. Okay. I'm excited. This is how the first woman got into medical school. So none of the faculty wanted to accept her. But she was a qualified applicant besides the fact that she was a woman and they knew that. Right. And so they decided to let the students decide. 
But the students thought it was a total joke. And so they all voted yes. And that is how the first woman was admitted to medical school. Why did they think it was a joke? I don't think it even crossed their minds. Like it wasn't even a possibility in their world. It was so far-fetched that they thought it was hilarious. I wish I was in the administration, like in the room when they got the vote that she was admitted in them being like, Oh God, what did we do? <laughs> Why did we let them decide? Oh my goodness. That would have been amazing to see. So Lizzie gets to Geneva, New York, and all the boys are shook that she actually showed up. <laughs> but awesome. also apparently the entire town of Geneva was really surprised to have her there attending medical school. Like ladies in this town would actually stare at her as she walked to class. And people would talk behind her back, saying that she was a bad woman or an insane woman who was going to cause an outbreak of insanity. I kind of skimmed over her autobiography at this point, but there was something she said in a letter that I really enjoyed. She says, November 9th, my first happy day. I feel really encouraged. The little fat professor of anatomy is a capital fellow. Certainly, I shall love fat men more than lean ones henceforth. What? That's one so sad because she said, my first happy day. I I just wonder how many sad days she had, which is, wow. I know. It's funny because she's talking about how she'll love fat men more than lean ones. And I was like, honestly, Lizzie, dad bods are in these days. So you are so ahead of your time. She was always ahead of her time, it sounds like. Clearly. Yeah, but the other students weren't very welcoming at first, obviously. Um, And yet with time and just diligence and intelligence, her abilities came forth and she was able to win the respect of the other students, the faculty, and even the townspeople. Very quickly, though, I wanted to do a little back in time to go over some of the aspects of Geneva Medical College in in particular. So you can pretend that I'm one of those medical school admissions people who are giving that presentation that schools do, you know, at the beginning of interview day. All right. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us on this beautiful interview day. To begin our presentation, I'll just tell you a little bit about Geneva Medical College. We have the finest staff, truly, a grand total of seven faculty members, and also a thriving class of 150 students in the whole school. Oh my God. To graduate, these are the requirements, okay? Our rigorous and accelerated curriculum requires attendance at two 16-week courses, submission of a thesis, and completion of an oral exam. We also offer zero electives and zero extracurricular opportunities. Okay, great. That was our curriculum <laughs> overview. We hope you join us for the, for the class of 1849 at Geneva Medical College. Okay, so back to the story. Lizzie writes her thesis on typhus, which is a disease, and at the time was very common among Irish immigrants, sick and insane people in this hospital in Philadelphia where she was spending her summer between a block, like between block one and block two, <laughs> the only two blocks. Oh man. Yes. So she writes her thesis on typhus. She passes her exams. And on January 23rd, 1849, Elizabeth Blackwell graduates with a medical degree. Yay. Yeah. 
So at this point, we're a little bit over halfway through our story. And I wanted to pause to see if you had any questions or any thoughts. Um, my only question that came to mind was like, did she say anything about if she was accepted like by her medical school class? Because I get like they were surprised when she first got there. I wonder if they accepted her towards the end or like on graduation day, were they still like, why is this woman here? Like she doesn't deserve it. Or did they like recognize capabilities throughout school yeah so they did eventually start to accept her because they saw that she was just they saw that she was far more intelligent and she was also very hard working which I think is for Elizabeth I think it's one of those examples of when you work so hard for something and like trying to make something happen is that much more difficult right you, you work harder that much more effort to make it happen yeah and the effort that she put in was just eons higher than these boys. Yeah. And that really came through in her work and in her effort. And that's why they respected her in the end. Okay, great. I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad she made some friends along the way, hopefully. Okay, so we're going to move into the next part of Lizzie's story, which is post grad life. So after graduating, she went to Europe and she tried to build on her existing career and education. But the only hospital she was allowed to work at was called. La Maternité. It was a hospital in Paris for pregnant women and women in labor, where she basically found out that her medical education had no value because they didn't recognize female physicians there since she was literally the first one. She was treated the same as these young, uneducated girls who were coming to Paris from small little French villages to study midwifery. She was just treated exactly the same as them. Wow, even though she literally had like the MD. But still, she learned a ton about women and women's diseases, children's diseases, because she was really in the thick of it there. However, while she was studying in Paris, she contracted purulent ophthalmia from a young patient because she was washing this patient's infected eye with like a saline solution. And some of that solution got into Lizzie's eye. This is bad news bears for Lizzie, okay? Because purulent ophthalmia, it was a little hard for me to research, so I hope this is accurate because all of the sources were literally from the 1800s. But from my understanding, purulent ophthalmia is basically a type of conjunctivitis, also known as pink eye. And actually, the bacteria that causes this particular strain of pink eye is gonococcus. <laughs> Do you know what other disease? Like gonorrhea? <laughs> Oh my God, Lizzie. And this is how they treated her. In one of the top hospitals in Paris, they treated her eye with hourly saline rinses, cauterizing her eyelashes, applying leeches to her temples, and giving her opium and purgatives to cleanse her body. But none of that worked. Because of this infection, this poor woman literally became blind in one eye and had to get it surgically removed. She had one eye? (laughs) Oh my God. That's crazy. Yeah. So she had one eye. And um, after that point, she moved to London to try to study at St. Bartholomew's Hospital for a year. But after that, she basically came back to the U.S. So in 1851, at the age of 30, she settles back down in New York City. And she had to give up her dream of being a surgeon because she only had one eye. 
So instead, she decided to establish her own practice in the city. But there were very few patients who would come to her because of social barriers. And so instead, her career turned into essentially what it would be for the rest of her life, which was promoting hygiene and preventative medicine among regular people and among medical professionals, but also promoting opportunities for women to become physicians. And so while living in New York, Elizabeth opened what was basically a free clinic. However, it was only open a few hours a week and had limited services. Still, in 1857, she ends up closing down her clinic and opening the New York Infirmary for Women and Children, which was actually a full-scale hospital with medical and surgical beds. So this woman literally opens up a whole hospital. It was, and this is so cool, this hospital is dope. It was run entirely by women, and its purpose was to serve female patients and their children. When male physicians got upset about her opening a hospital, essentially, for only women, yeah, she argued that the goal of the hospital was to provide female-centered care and also to provide employment for women physicians and nursing students. Wow, that just yeah. like brings me to the idea of like having certain spaces for women exactly. to have care in Planned Parenthood or like women's health centers. Right, society. which is so cool also because Lizzie felt the strain and the, the issues that came with being a woman and she opened the doors for so many people. And when people got mad at her for it, she basically said, no, this is to create space because there wasn't space when I was around. Yeah, she's like, you couldn't give me the space, so I made it. Yeah. And this hospital, the New York Infirmary for Women and Children, what do you think happened to this hospital? Do you think it still exists? Is it gone? What do you think? Um, I feel like it still exists. Was it converted into like a like a big hospital and that we would know of in today's society or like a big medical yes. school? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it still exists. It's actually the New York University downtown hospital. Oh, that's so cool. I know, right? I thought that was super cool. Well, since Lizzie had left medical school, so since that point until now, other medical colleges were popping up in the Northeast and they were actually being made specifically for women. However, she wasn't the biggest supporter of these specifically women's medical colleges because she thought that men and women should be trained together and should Mm -hmm. be treated equally. Agreed. Valid. (laughs) Still, since none of the women were being given spots in male medical schools, she was convinced by her peers, by her sister, to open the Women's College of the New York Infirmary in 1858. And the first class had 15 students and nine faculty. Within the faculty, she was one of the professors. She was a professor of medical hygiene, and her sister, Emily, was a professor of obstetrics and diseases of women. A year after her college opened, she actually moved back to England, though, because she wanted to move back there to promote educating women physicians. And in England, she became a major activist, particularly in terms of her work towards repealing what is called the Contagious Diseases Acts. So the Contagious Diseases Acts were these acts that were written in response to STI outbreaks. Because at the time, people believed that only women could spread STIs. 
Excuse me? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How does that make any medical sense? Yeah. And these acts basically let police officers arrest any women they assumed were prostitutes. And the acts would essentially allow the police officers to arrest whoever they wanted and have them checked for STIs. And if you had an STI, then you were locked up and you were put in jail. What? No questions asked. No Did they treat them at least? No. What? Because antibiotics weren't like available. That's at the time. true. Yeah, they probably couldn't treat them. Yeah. But still. Yeah. So Lizzie spent 17 years working to repeal those laws and educating people about how better hygiene could reduce STI transmission. So she spent 17 Makes years sense. of her life in England working on repealing those laws. And she was successful, which is very cool. In 1859, she became the first woman recognized by the Medical Register of the United Kingdom as a physician. Finally. And she ended up living in England for the next 40 years of her life. Wow. In those 40 years that she was living in England, she did go back and forth between England and the U.S. um, because she was heavily involved in our Civil War, the American Civil War, and also making sure that her school in New York was very established before she really took leave. Mm-hmm. And in her later years, she was still pretty active. She wrote her autobiography and even opened a hospital in England with the help of other prominent women in medicine, including Florence Nightingale. Wow! I know! Apparently, these two were childhood friends. They what? had a long history together. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, For those of you who don't know, who don't know, Florence Nightingale is a nurse, and I won't say more because we are definitely going to be talking about her in a future episode. Yes. Ultimately, Elizabeth Blackwell fell down the stairs in 1907, which left her permanently disabled. I know. And in 1910, she passed away from a stroke at the age of 90. She fell down the stairs at 87 years old. I'm like, okay, I would too. Like, (laughs) I fall down the stairs now and I'm 23. (laughs) And with that, I am concluding our deep dive into the life of the first female physician. How about we take a quick break and then we can come back? Yes, yes, let's do that. So Charlotte, how do you feel after our history? What are your thoughts about Lizzie? What stuck with you or what struck you about her story? Well, yeah, that was all very interesting. Like a lot of things took me by surprise. Um, I also didn't realize that she traveled like across the ocean multiple times. Like, I don't know why I assumed she was from the United States, but it's cool to see how like her impact on medicine it was like international. And then my other thought on it was I also wasn't surprised by a lot of stuff, how she wasn't really accepted to medical school or how people were telling her to dress like a man mm-hmm. or, you know, that her getting in was a joke and those kind of things. Cause I was honestly expecting that from the history. Like I had no idea how she got into medical school. And I can't imagine like trying to do something when the whole world is telling you that you can't. Yeah. I, Definitely felt all of those things as I was researching her. She's so accomplished and so incredible. However, a lot of what she had to go through, I was unfortunately not surprised by at all because 
some things that she experienced, we can echo in our own experiences too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agree. So my second question, before I ask it, I wanted to give a little feminist corner for this episode. So the vocab word that I wanted to explain today is called social construction. Social construction is the way that society defines certain things or certain ideas. So for example, you'll often hear that gender is a social construct, which means that society chooses how to define gender. It's not this concrete thing that has a set definition. Mm -hmm. It changes depending on who you're around and what context you're in. And with that, I wanted to ask you if you had any thoughts about what the social construction of gender at the time that Lizzie was alive, Mm -hmm. how that might've affected her story. What was the social construction of gender at the time? Just like, give me your thoughts on gender and how gender roles or gender construction affected Lizzie's life. Okay. Yeah. So my first thought goes back to like the very beginning when you put me, you know, in that body in the 1800s and like (laughs) women are wearing corsets and like the big balloon skirts. And that's like what I think of when I think of like 1800s women, because I just think women were viewed as they had to be these perfect people. Um, And I don't think that any of those ideas were surrounded around women's intelligence. I think they weren't viewed as having their own original ideas or understandings of how like the world is constructed or how countries are run or what goes on in like politics or just society in general. So that I don't think they were given much of a voice. And of course, I don't know any of this for sure, but this is what I, assuming women were um, perceived at, at that time. I think that's what held Lizzie back, you know, is that she got this idea from her friend to go into medicine. She probably was like, oh my God, you crazy girl. But like, <laughs> I'm gonna go with it. Like that's probably went through her head. And like, she met all these barriers where people were like, well, if you want to go, you definitely need to dress like a man. They weren't even like, oh, you should do this for sure. Like we'll help you figure out ways for you as a woman to get into medical school and accomplish this as a woman. And right. because men were viewed as being intellectuals and for women, it wasn't that same view, like views of women more based in the home and like family and motherly life, which I think is interesting because it definitely like shaped how even when she got her MD, she still worked only with women, it looks like, and mm-hmm. with children. But it just sounds like she was completely limited to those fields because they were the only ones that even when she was a doctor, that people thought she could actually have an impact in. They couldn't even like imagine a world where she would be treating men and be able to be a physician for a male patient and be actually able to help him and cure him. Like they thought, okay, you know, we're going to, I guess we'll accept you as a female physician, but you have to stay with the girls, you know? Right. Like you have to stay in your lane. Right. Exactly. Like you don't get to be with the boys kind of thing. Yeah. I totally agree because when I was thinking about Lizzie's life and the way that gender or the social construction of gender affected her life was me thinking about how women were viewed kind of like you were saying as as fragile as needing to be protected Mm -hmm. as there's an image for them right like they couldn't be intellectual they couldn't be intelligent because thinking too hard would hurt them Mm -hmm. actually in her autobiography she tells this little story of her anatomy class that she was in Ooh. 
her professor didn't even want her present when they were doing dissections because he thought it was improper for a woman to be, you know, seeing a naked body. That was just, that's just an example, like concretely of her life where people Mm -hmm. didn't want her to feel uncomfortable or be in a position of what he perceived would be improper for her. Right. Whereas she was like, no, I'm here and I'm here to do this dissection. I'm here to be a physician. Like, this is why I'm here. Yeah. But he put his own idea and thoughts of gender and gender norms, he reflected them onto her Mm -hmm. and was therefore affecting her life. Yeah. I think that brings up another point too, that like the gender norms aren't always meant to like harm other people. Like, Because I think in the case of that professor, I doubt he was like, oh, Elizabeth can't be in here because she's a woman and she shouldn't be given the chance to learn anatomy. Just imagine him actually believing she shouldn't be seeing this because I'm just trying to protect her. The intentions were very pure. Right. No. Well, actually, yeah. So tying into that, the little fat professor that I mentioned, that was the anatomy professor. Oh, amazing. Yeah. That's totally speaks to my point. Yeah. And it's interesting. It got me thinking about like parallels to our lives and Mm -hmm. how we are affected by gender norms of our times. And so that kind of ties into my next question really well. So something that I think about is how to create change or be like a conduit of change. But I guess what I wanted to ask is at what point does one cross the line between working within the system to create change versus challenging the system. So in this example with Lizzie, should she working within it to create change or do what she actually did, which was just apply as a woman and completely like challenge the entire system as it was? Yeah. But I guess what comes to mind for me is I know when I first got interested in being a physician, I was always like, I want to be able to be in the hospital and wear a cute pair of heels and be able to look the other male physicians in the eye. That was like a really important idea to me that like I had to be a certain height to be able to be respected as a physician and as like a woman. But now as someone who has worn heels as an adult and gone to interview days and literally took off my heels in the parking lot and just went with wearing flats because it was more comfortable. Like if I want to wear heels, that's totally fine. I will, but I don't want to do it anymore for the purpose of being respected. The lack of height can be assisted with your persona and your ability and not the literal height. That's like a very small example of like going with the system or challenging the system, but that was the person that came to mind. But I think when do you cross the line? I think it comes down to who it impacts in the end. So with the heels, I could definitely just wear heels and they could be really uncomfortable and I could still do it because that's how I want people to see me. And I really don't think that decision would ultimately affect the whole profession of medicine in women in medicine. I think it would really just affect me and how much my feet hurt at the end of the day. But there are some decisions where you are not just impacting yourself, you might be impacting other students or your friends, or maybe just your female patients. I think those are situations where crossing the line becomes more important. Like it's not just about you. It's about like, how can we enact change for the people who come after us or just like the patients we're trying to serve. Right. How can we advocate for those who are coming after us or those who are in our care to better mm-hmm. their lives? I think that's a really good way to put it and a good way to look at it. It puts things in perspective. Mm-hmm. I guess when I was also thinking about this question, I was thinking about being in the room where it happens. You know how many times I've thought that line this entire 
podcast episode like probably five times um but I guess what I was thinking was there's nothing wrong with working within a system to enact change like small changes that people do within a system that we don't even see affect us down the lines but I was thinking kind of about how you can work within a system for some time and do your best within that until you're in a position or maybe a place of power or in the room where it happens (laughs) to enact downstream change to help people who come after you or the people in your care like if you're in that space where you have the ability to make change because you worked so hard before then you can do that great okay well then my last question is wondering how aspects of this story resonate with women what lessons can we take away from her story my first thought goes back to like the whole social construct ideas as she really broke through societal norms at the time, like today's world where there's social media and people like scrutinizing your every move. Um, It could definitely like be scary to do something out of your own comfort zone or just like the world's comfort zone. I think she just leads a good example for if you have your mindset on something, what society is telling you to do shouldn't matter as much when you have like these pure intentions to want to leave an impact on other people. I just think that's like good inspiration. But, you know, just keep working at it and you might be a female pioneer in the future. Yeah, I was thinking something similar. Like I obviously Lizzie's story is one of perseverance and talent, but even more than that, I think what I liked so much about it was how intentional she was. Mm -hmm. Like she wanted something and she worked diligently for years at it. And I think that's something that I really like about medicine as like a field is how intentional it can be, like how intentional it is. It's a long, long journey and it takes a lot of work and perseverance and grit to get there. But other fields, for example, like business or I don't know, that was the first one I thought of. (laughs) They're sometimes more associated with luck. Like Mm -hmm. if you get lucky, things will work out for you. If you happen to like come up with this great idea, you can pursue it. But medicine is this slow game and you have to keep playing and it's like the forever chess match. But I think that also creates this space where you can put your passion ahead of you and you can work towards your goals over time. And I think that's really cool because it gives you autonomy it gives you agency mm-hmm. <laughs> like allows you to make decisions for yourself and work towards something because that's in your power to do that and so that's kind of what I took away from her story is is the long game like you can keep working and working at something and you can see change if you keep working at it and like keep adjusting the way you think about things and keep moving forward and I think it's very hopeful because as someone who's very, very, you know, at the beginning of this journey, it's going to be a long way to get to where we want to go. But I think Lizzie gives me hope that as a woman, like I can achieve whatever it is I want to achieve if I just work at it diligently and like with intelligence and with intention. Yeah, I agree. And I think that we are lucky to be going into a field like medicine because it's always changing and evolving and then there's so much innovation in the field not just like in the idea that you know research 
is always happening and new things are always being discovered. But I mean, this podcast is literally about the history of women in medicine and in healthcare. Like so much has changed over all of history and it's going to be that way for all of time going forward. Yeah, I agree. It's very exciting. Um, and I'm happy that we get to do this. Great. All right. Well, do you have any closing remarks, anything that we want to leave our listeners with? Um, nothing more than if you are an expert on Elizabeth Blackwell, you know, let us know because that'd be real fun <laughs> to talk to you about. Like, I want to learn all the things about Lizzie. That'd be great. Or if you just want to talk to us in general, you can reach out through the different ways that Alicia will tell you about. Um, also, go ahead and hit that subscribe button, whether you're on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode on every other Tuesday. And then also, we would love it, love it, love it if you would leave a rating and review on the podcast. This is extremely helpful for us as new podcasters because it will help our podcast get more attention. And when people search um, on the different podcasting apps, our podcast is more likely to come to the top of the search if we have more ratings and reviews. So that'd be very helpful. But if you don't have the time right now, then we completely understand. We are just happy that you listened in all the way to this point in the episode. And yeah, like Shala was saying, you should feel free to contact us. We love hearing from you. We, you can follow us on Instagram. You can check out our website, check us out on Facebook, all at From Skirts to Scrubs. Basically, that's our handle for everything. And also on our website, you can find our show notes and sources. You can leave feedback. We love our website. We love our social media. We check it all the time. So feel free to contact us, send us an email. All of the following, we are here to listen to you. Yes. Because yes. you've listened to us and we love you for it. Yep. We want this to be a, a relationship between us and you. We want to learn <laughs> together. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Well, and lastly, I just want to give a little shout out to all of the women, including Elizabeth Blackwell, of course, who fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. All right, we'll see you next episode. Yeah, thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Yay.